As you're seated, please open the Bible, your Word of God, to Genesis chapter 38. Genesis chapter 38, and we'll read together these verses, and then we'll study together, and uh, Lord willing, uh, He will change us. He will make us more like our Savior, our Lord, our friend, Jesus Christ. Genesis chapter 38, verse 1, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hirah. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chazib when she was born him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of her brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hirah the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where's the colt prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? They said, no colt prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no colt prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see... I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them. And said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. 
When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand. And the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Father, we have read your word. God, we are incapable of change or benefit, God, unless your spirit works in our hearts and minds as we work through and study your word. God, thank you for the benefit of this time. Lord, I pray that you would use it in our hearts and minds for your glory. In Jesus' name. Well, as we've worked through Genesis, brothers and sisters, we've come across some difficult chapters, (laughs) passages. (laughs) We need to remember that Moses was writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to teach Israel as they were coming out of Egypt, this is who God is, this is who we are. (laughs) And for there to be change, God must be at work. And He is at work. Who is God but the holy, powerful, almighty, good, merciful God? And who are we but those who need His salvation? So he's teaching all throughout Genesis through Deuteronomy how to live in faithfulness to the faithful God. And because this is the Word of God written with that specific focus, it does still apply to us today. And as you can see, there is brokenness at the time that this was written much in the same way and in similar ways as there is today. Chapter 38 of Genesis is such a sordid turn of events It's one of the least read and or taught or preached passages in Genesis, in the Bible. Uh, Like chapter 34 was what Pastor Kyle led us through, uh, one commentator wrote, this passage is, quote, entirely unsuited to homiletical use, unquote, which means don't ever preach this chapter. (laughs) (laughs) Now, a big problem for many people besides the content is the placement of it as well. You know, we've just started Joseph's story, and if you've read Joseph's story or you've heard Joseph's story, you know there's so much uh, difficulty that happens to Joseph, but so much righteousness from him, so much of a godly response in the middle of so many trials. And we've just started Joseph's story when, wham, we get this from Judah (laughs) And, and this interruption. And then we get back to Joseph, and it's intentional, it's important Because first of all, this uh, story that's going to be following Joseph's life isn't really about Joseph, it's about the Lord. And secondly, this chapter is going to become part, this this, uh, ugly chapter to some of us is going to become part of the overall big picture that's teaching us about our Lord, about Himself and about ourselves, as we'll see later. But there's so much here in application, and the, and the application for us, I believe, will be the same application that it was for the people of Israel thousands of years ago, and there will be warnings about sin. That will be the idea for this chapter, so, so many warnings to us about sin, but there's going to be encouragement as well, some, some really amazing encouragement that will overcome the terribleness of this sin, but we've got to go through the terribleness first. <laughs> The passage breaks up into five different sections, and each of them is going to play a part in warning us about sin before we get encouragement. But there's a verse in the New Testament that concisely summarizes, I believe, the lessons from Genesis 38. 
And I'd like you to turn with me to Hebrews 3. Just hold your place here in Genesis. We won't spend a long time in, in Hebrews chapter 3. But, but it's important to see this and to understand this, and, and I don't know how you're going to do this while you're turning there, but in your notes, you're talented people, you can figure out how to write in the notes and turn there. Um, it's important to, to remember, to, to be refreshed, that the New Testament often teaches what the Old Testament shows. We've talked about that before, but th- this is a, a really good instance of this. The, the New Testament t- often teaches what the Old Testament shows. Here's what Hebrews 3 verse 12 says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by this deceitfulness of sin. So let's walk through that together quickly. Take care, in verse 12, is the word for seeing, for watching being aware, and then taking responsibility to make sure this happens. See to it that this happens. Take care that this happens. And what that's supposed to be is in verse 13, we're supposed to be watching and taking care that we exhort one another. This is another one of our one another passages in the Scriptures that we key in on so often. God says that we're to take responsibility to exhort one another. What does that mean? Exhort is a loaded word. It's a big word. It means that, that we call alongside, we invite, even beg, implore at times, to encourage, to comfort, to advise, to mourn, to comfort, and, and to give advice. In other words, it encompasses so much more than just, hey, have a, have a great day, or hey, I wouldn't do that if I were you, or you know, any of the phrases that we have. There's so much more than that because it is a calling alongside of a person to a person. We miss it if we exclusively talk about the what and we forget about the who in the word exhort. To exhort doesn't mean you're going to face somebody one-on-one and say, hey, this is what you're doing wrong, or hey, this is what you're doing well. This is to get alongside, to call alongside that person to you, and where we are, according to verse 13, is in Christ. So as brothers and sisters in Christ, we call alongside our brother and our sister, and we're commanded to do that, to, to see to it that we exhort to keep one another in Christ, in fellowship with one another. You're commanded to do that, and I'm commanded to do that. And, and I'm not to wait for you to ask for this. He says you're to see to it, be careful, take care to do this for one another. And we're to do it all the time. So, like, every Sunday when I see somebody... No, no, not every week, every day, as long as it's called today, constantly, daily, calling one another alongside where we are in Christ. That means we've got to make sure we're in Christ, and we're exhorting one another to be back in Christ. Why? Because back in verse 12, he says, lest, here's the alternative, lest there be in any of you, me included, this is for all of us, there's a warning and a danger for all of us, that any of us would have an evil heart which is the same thing as an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. There are, brother and sister, only two alternatives for us in this life. You're either in Christ and you're constantly being called alongside brothers and sisters who are also in Christ so that we can remain there or we're being led away from the living God with an evil, unbelieving heart. And another description is found in verse 13, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. Why? so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is so deceitful. 
It's so tricky, it's so insidious that it grabs a hold of you from the inside in your heart and mind without you knowing it. Before you know it, it's hardened your heart towards God and towards others. It's an evil heart that it's become. Without you even knowing it, it's made your heart evil through unbelief and you're well on your way away from the living God. That's what sin does. It tricks, it deceives, it it hardens, it leads you away and you don't even know it. Because you think you're doing fine. The Puritan John Owen said, Sin is never less quiet than when it seems to be most quiet. That means that the times when you're not concerned about sin, you say, I've got it under control. There's nothing I've got to worry about. I've got other things to deal with. Right? That's when sin has already sunk its teeth into you and into me. When we're not worried about it. When we, when we think we're doing okay. Because sin's teeth, like a mosquito bite, comes with an anesthetic so that you don't feel it. You don't feel it. You don't know it. You don't see it. And that's why so often we get so focused and carried away with other topics and other issues other than sin in our life. Oh, sin, yeah, that's, you know, that's in the past. Jesus took care of all of that. I don't have to worry about that anymore. Let's talk about how I can be happier. Let's talk about how I can get more of what I want out of this life. I've already taken care of my sin problem. Now, some of us are saying, yeah, that's me. I need, I, you know, we're, I'm going to key in on this. Others of us, without even realizing, have said, well, thank God that's not me. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have to listen that much. I'll just try to remember this, and if I ever do have a sin problem, <laughs> I'll deal with it then, right? These verses are showing us, and the verses around it, that sin, unbelief, evil, a hardened heart that leads you away from, from God is constantly there. It's not just there. It's here. It's within us. That's why Paul explains in Ephesians 4.22, we've got to put off our old self, which belongs to our former manner of life. Why? What's wrong with it? It is corrupt through deceitful desires. Again, that deceptiveness of sin. So that I want more of what I want. And for reasons that aren't right. And it's so dangerous because those desires of the flesh that are led by sin into sin replace the love of the truth that leads to our salvation. That's the very activity of Satan in the Antichrist, according to 2 Thessalonians 2. That's how, that's how Satan works in the Antichrist and in our own hearts and minds, leading us to sin away from, away from the Lord, away from the truth, so that we can be saved. In other words, we might convince ourselves we don't have to worry about sin or think about sin anymore, but when we stop acknowledging it, fighting it, killing it, it's already taken control. It's leading us away from our God and our Father. Now, that's not a really feel-good message. That's not really going to be a popular message, but one of the greatest tragedies in Christian churches is that we've left out a lot of these difficult teachings of acknowledging sin and fighting it, especially together, one another, brothers and sisters, ganging up on the sin in me. (laughs) Let's gang up on the sin in you. Oh, no, that sounds scary. I don't want to do that. But that's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be seeing to it that that happens. It's been said that the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to convince the world that he doesn't exist. A great trick pulled on Christians today is you don't have to think about sin. You don't worry about sin. It's all taken care of. Let's talk about anything, everything else. Brother and sister, I want to encourage you that if you're struggling with sin, life, the Christian life is a battle. It's a battle with sin. 
That's what we're called to. The Christian life is not a life where you just never have to worry about sin anymore. You just get victory every day, victory over sin. I don't ever, I'm walking on the clouds. <laughs> if you're fighting against it, you're disgusted by your own sin. That's not a failure, brother, sister. That's what it's about. I, I talk to many Christians and they get so discouraged because, you know, that guy over there doesn't seem to be struggling with the way I'm struggling. That lady over there never seems to have any sin that she, you know, she's worried about or that she's struggling with. And, you know, I'm just, I can't get there. I'm just, this Christianity thing just isn't working for me. <laughs> they get so discouraged. But that's just it. The Christianity thing, the, the Holy Spirit is working within you when you hate that sin and you're struggling against that sin. Don't be discouraged when you see sin and you hate it. That's what's supposed to happen. One day God's going to take us home and he's going to take us out of sin. And we're not going to sin anymore and then we won't ever have to be sorrowful about that. But it's a spiritual battle. That's what we mean by this battle that's going on inside of us. It is a spiritual battle. It begins, it continues, it ends inside of us. So we need to be exhorting one another, brothers and sisters, calling one another aside, alongside each other as we are in Christ to avoid all of that. That's the antidote given here in Hebrews 3. So the bottom line, go back to, to Genesis chapter 38. The bottom line is, let's not ignore the lessons in Genesis 38. This is a problem for every one of us, and it's a bigger problem if we ignore it, if we avoid it, if we think it doesn't apply to us. What this chapter shows us in all its gritty detail is the entanglement and the danger and deceit of sin. But then, Lord willing, we'll be just awed by the encouragement from God. We'll get there. But let's trudge through this first. <laughs> trudge through with joy. Number one, the, first, the, the five parts to this account, the first part, number one, is the setup in verses one, and five, one through five, the setup. It happened at that time. What time? Well, the time after chapter 37, which Pastor Kyle led us through last week. Joseph was hated by his brothers. He was hated even more by his brothers. He was hated even more by his brothers, and then they became jealous of him. So they hatched a plan to kill him, and then they came up with a different plan. And then the final plan that came from Judah's mind was to get some money out of the deal. Let's make 20 shekels out of selling him into, into slavery. But there were 12 brothers. One of them is being sold. Reuben isn't there. So there are 10 brothers, and you take that 20 shekels, you divide it by 10. They all only got two shekels out of the deal. <laughs> so much for getting rich off of selling their brother. But they got back home, and Judah witnessed his father Jacob descend into an inconsolable depression because he thought his son was dead. And you saw Jacob, he decided that he was going to live the rest of his life just in sorrow, in depression, in, in, in inconsolable, just deep sorrow and depression. So verse 36 says, meanwhile, Joseph gets traded down to Egypt. He's being trafficked. He's enslaved. He begins work and life as a slave. In the meantime, here's what Judah does. Judah makes friends and enters into a partnership with Hirah and marries a Canaanite woman whose name we never even learn. And the important part of this is that the, the entire family to this point has avoided that very thing. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, everybody has avoided marrying a Canaanite woman, not because they're racist, but because the Canaanite women they know are raised with Canaanite gods and Canaanite religion, and those religions from those wives will be able to pull them away from faithfulness to God. So they have been very careful not to do this. And the only thing that we're told that attracted Judah to her is that he saw her 
and took her. His decision was based on the desires of his eyes, the lust of the eyes, First John talks about. That never comes from the Father, but from the world. It's also key that we don't skip over those words in verse 1, that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Judah has exchanged the company of his believing family for the company of an unbeliever. He's become unequally yoked. He's living as an unbeliever. He becomes close friends with an unbeliever at the expense of his friendships, his fellowship with believers, and he's married an unbeliever. He has removed himself from the community and the fellowship of believers. And he tried to substitute that with fellowship with the world, friendship with the world. And all of that started, of course, after his plan worked out to sell his brother to slavery because of hatred, because of jealousy, spurred on by greed. And he's seen the carnage that it brought about in his father, the terrible consequences of his family, but instead of dealing with any of it, he took off. He ran away. I'll just get out of this trouble. He's got to be dealing with guilt. But action based on worldly guilt doesn't lead you anywhere good, does it? Godly guilt leads to repentance that leads to salvation. There's no regret there at all. (laughs) Guilt from sin that leads you to repent and to be saved. Praise God for that guilt. But worldly kind of guilt leads you into farther and farther sin, more guilt, full of regret. The tragedy, though, is that things start to go pretty well for Judah. That's the tragedy. It's not, it's not a good thing that they start to go well because Judah and his Canaanite wife have three sons together. That's a blessing, isn't it? That's a blessing from God to have three children. But so often what he did, apparently, what we mistakenly so often do is we perceive blessing from God as approval from God. Their sons are Ur, Onan, and Shelah, so you can see some success here in a sense, but the warnings just begin jumping off the page, and we've got three warnings for this first section. Number one, don't be ruled by your desires, your lusts, your your desires of your flesh. Now, this flies in the face of everything the world tells us. If you want something, you go after it, and you get it, right? That's what you want. That's what you should do. Follow your heart, (laughs) Figure out what you want and go after it. No, examine what you want and why and submit to the will of the Lord God. This is what we're living our life for. This is why he has us here, for his glory. Everything that Judah has done to this point is whatever he wanted. That's the first warning. The second warning, don't separate yourself from fellowship with believers. Don't separate yourself. Don't cut yourself off. A big part of why we stay here on earth after we have believed is because Jesus told us, (laughs) you're here, to help one another, to love one another. Hebrews 3, to exhort one another. If you notice a brother or sister who hasn't been at church in a while, hasn't hasn't come to Koinonia Group in a while, you notice someone who's kind of withdrawing from the fellowship, exhort that person, call call that person alongside of you to say, look, you've got to come back into the fellowship. You've got to come back to the Lord. Not, not because we're the Lord, but because we do make up His body here on earth. If you notice that you are saying, you know, I just really don't feel like going to church. I, it's been like six months and I still don't feel like going. Let a brother or sister know. Look, I, I'm struggling with this. I, I didn't even think I was struggling. I thought I was doing fine. But I've cut myself off. Third warning. Don't interpret blessings from God as approval from God. 
Don't interpret the blessings from God as approval from God. Jesus said in Matthew 5, God makes His Son rise on the evil and the good. He sends His rain on the just and the unjust because God is the God of blessing. And He's going to bless the people on this earth with air to breathe and with food to eat and and water to drink and millions of other alternatives besides water (laughs) and and so much beauty in this world. He's He's a God of blessing. But that doesn't mean that it's approval Those blessings from God make us more accountable to Him, not less, because they come from His hand. So we're more accountable to respond with thankfulness and repentance and worship. It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance, Romans 2, 4 says. So you can see, your your sin can harden your heart against God even when there's good happening to you or to others. So the the next section here, part 2, verses 6 through 11 Number two in your notes, we're going to see sin and punishment. More sin and punishment. These verses shock a lot of people. Uh, Judah takes it upon himself to choose a wife for his firstborn Ur, and he chooses Tamar, whose name means palm tree. And to us, like, that's kind of (laughs) funny. But it refers to her elegant, appealing form and beauty. So, again, Judah is choosing a wife for his firstborn based on what he sees. But there's going to be a lot more to Tamar than what you see. (laughs) Ur and Tamar get married in verse 7, but verse 7 is so striking. Ur was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Wow. What did he do? We want some kind of answer. I want an answer mostly because I want to make sure I don't do what he did, (laughs) right? We want a grave sin listed, or we want some kind of pattern of extreme sinfulness, you know, some kind of outright terrible transgression. Some want to vindicate God by saying, well, this must have been really bad. The fact is that this is what every single one of us deserves because of sin. This is what sin does. This is what sin brings is death. Sometimes God will take the life of a sinner to show people what sin deserves, and it's just. God always does what is right and what is just. He doesn't need us to try to stick up for Him or rationalize away what God does, this is what sin earns us. Now, not all life that is taken is taken for direct sinfulness, but in this case it was. There's speculation about what it was, that maybe it was the same hook that grabs onto so many men, even today, especially today, sexual sins. Speculation that that's what it was. Regardless of what it was, God says, the soul that sins shall die because sin deserves death. And it doesn't matter what your pedigree was or is or what you've done, what kind of good that you've done. Sin is treason against God every time against His just rule, and it deserves death. The wages of sin, church, Romans 6, is death. Ur's pedigree was, he's the firstborn of Judah. You know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, the firstborn Ur. I mean, this is God's chosen line, right? That didn't exempt him from sin and its consequences. Jesus said, you will die in your sins. This is some of the scariest words that I know in the Scriptures. Unless Jesus dies in your place. And that's received by God's grace through faith given to us. Ur died for his sin because of God's justice. Judah's instruction then to Onan was to fulfill the law of the Leveret marriage. 
that law was that the oldest son, if he's married and he dies, the next youngest, the, the next son who's unmarried marries her and has a child, and that child becomes credited to the older son. Th- that way the line can continue the way that they thought it should. Now, it's the law of the land at this point, not specifically God's law yet, as far as we know. Um, you can decline, but there is a lot of shame involved in a shame culture. She, she can spit in your face and remove your, your shoe, um, and that was... In a, in a shame culture, that's life-altering <laughs> to have that kind of shame. But Judah, the father, specifically tells his son Onan to do this. And in verse 9, Onan does not say, no way. He keeps his shoes and his face is clean <laughs> because he deceives everybody into thinking he's going along with a plan. He marries Tamar, but we see that he only then starts to use her for his own sexual gratification. He intentionally prevents pregnancy in Latin it's called coitus interruptus, what he does. Now, there's been much written about this sin from Onan. Onanism, you may understand, the term has, was coined for this, referring to sexual gratification um, for yourself. I don't believe that's what the specific point of this is, but the, the idea here is that we had no specific information about Ur's sin. We have this pretty specific sins from Onan, We've already read it. We don't need to rehash it. But it wasn't a one-time thing. It says whenever this happened, that's what he did. Every single time, that's what he does. Now, why? Well, the motivation could be selfishness. I want my own children for my own sake. It could be greed. I want the inheritance for myself. Uh, Most people throughout history have keyed in on the possibility that it is at least selfish sexual gratification. I just want what I want. I want to have what I want to have without any responsibility, without any kind of commitment that defines the sexual revolution that's been going on for many years in our culture and continues today. I get what I get. I get what I want. I don't have to pay any kind of um, responsibility, take on any kind of responsibility. It's sin holding to sin, defending sin. And it's all essentially rebellious against the divine purpose for marriage that God has put in, in place. He uses Tamar but rejects God's plan. It's rebellious, it's sin, it's intentional, it's high-handed, it's sinful not just against God because all sin is against God, but against Tamar, against her house, against Ur, against uh, his own father Judah and himself. And for all of that, then, God puts him to death as well for his wickedness. Now, at this point, Judah's looking at one son instead of three. He might see that as a wake-up call from God to start dealing with sin, right? He doesn't see how his own sins have affected his sons. He doesn't see how the fault has been in his sons. When you're deceived and hardened by sin, you're not going to see fault in yourself. You're not going to see sin in anything else. It's blinded you, and it always spreads. That's why it's called, in Galatians 5, 9, yeast or leaven. It spreads. It infects. It continues And so it does continue. Judah now has to find a way to keep his son alive. His words here contain an implicit blame of Tamar for the death of his two sons. You know, I don't want him to die like the other two have. Well, then deal with sin, Judah, right? He says, you go, you unlucky jinx of a woman. Two of my sons have died because of you. You go back to your father's house. Wait till Shelah, my son, grows up. He's living in fear that his son is going to die. But there's no instruction for Shelah. There's no exhortation to walk with the Lord. There's blaming on Tamar. There's ignoring sin in himself and his other sons. There's a rationalizing because he's not dealing with this sin. 
let's, let's pretend it's something else. That's what he does. Let's just pretend it's something else. It's got to be something else besides sin. It's so tempting for us today as well. Now, brothers and sisters, I, I need to say at this point, not every problem that we, that we face, not every trouble that we encounter is directly the result of our own sin, right? We know that. It would be a terrible way to, oh, you stubbed your toe, repent of your sins. <laughs> you know, your car broke down. You are a sinner and you deserve that. <laughs> not everything is a direct result of sin, but so many more of our problems with our relationship with our God with the relationships with the people around us, do come down to sin, whether ours or somebody's around us that has infected and, and affected and influenced us, probably more than we would ever even be possible for us to understand or acknowledge or admit. Sin has to be dealt with. We need to deal with it properly. We're going to see that shortly, but we're not done with the warnings yet. Warning number four, don't take God's patience for granted. God is patient. He's long-suffering. Again, Romans 2.4 refers to the riches, the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience. The fact that you're here, sitting here, brothers and sisters, is a testament to God's patience. We deserved what Ur got. We deserved what Onan got, but we're still here by God's grace, His mercy, His patience. But don't take that patience for granted. Number five, warning number five, don't judge God's actions. God's actions are right. They're true. God is sovereign and he does what he pleases. But what, he please, what, what pleases him is justice, is righteousness. It's always right. He will never do anything that's unjust. Brother and sister, listen, he will never do anything that's unjust unless it's merciful. <laughs> it's not right for me to be saved. It's only by his mercy. Hold on to that promise. Never question God's character. In the worst of times, He's doing what's right. He's doing what's good, what leads to good. Number six, don't pretend to obey. Warning number six, don't pretend to obey. God saw right through Onan's pretended obedience. He, God was there in the closed doors when He was misusing and abusing His wife, using her for His own gratification. And God will have justice, even if you think you've gotten away with something. Or if you've been a victim of this kind of abuse, or worse, God will have justice. So some warnings for sin. Number three, the third part, verses 12 through 19, the scheming and sin. There, there is some scheming now with the sin. And, and I know that we're still waiting on the encouraging part, and we're going to get there, Lord willing. We're going to get there, just not yet. Verse 12. In the course of time, some time has passed, more than enough for Shelah to have grown, to be able to marry Tamar, but nothing's happened. On top of that, Judah's nameless wife dies. We're not told why, so we won't assume that it's wickedness like it was for Ur and Onan because it's part of our life on this earth that we have to deal with death. And it's not always because of direct sin that that happens. In this sin-cursed world, we have to deal with it, and it's difficult. Judah takes comfort somehow, somewhere, some way he finds comfort, and then he says, you know what, I'm going to go to work. I'm going to get myself just absorbed with work, and I'm going to get through this. I'm going to drown my sorrows with work, and not only that, I'm going to comfort myself with some sex. That's his answer. 
The opportunity presents itself because Tamar has devised a plan. She'll take off her widow garments. She'll wrap herself in a veil. Advertising herself as available, but only where she knows Judah is going to be. She knows Judah well enough to know that this plan is going to work. And it's important because Judah is the one who initiates the contact and the contract that they engage in. Let me come into you, verse 16 says. She says, what's the payment? I don't have it with me. I'll get, what do you want as a guarantee? Three things that are unique to him and that identify him exclusively. A signet could have been a ring or a cylinder that you, you could leave a mark as your signature. They would identify you and you only. Uh, the cord would have held it uh, around your neck. It would have been recognizable as belonging to one person. The staff would have had a unique carving uh, that would, again, identify one person in particular. It would be unique to Judah. There's no question who these belonged to. And I don't know if, how, if that's how Tamar planned this from the beginning or not, but it, that's the way it worked out. It worked out perfectly according to her plan. When it was all finished, she went back home, changed back into her normal clothes, and Judah went to work. It was all done. Judah, again, got what he wanted with no responsibility, nothing to answer for, so he thought. Warning number seven, don't comfort yourself in your sin. Don't comfort yourself in your sin. When you sin, when, when, you, when you rebel against God or, or you harm somebody else, there's going to be some discomfort within, and the reason for that is so that you'll deal with it, not so that you'll try to find a way around it. I've heard it many times. I heard it a couple of times this week from people, oh, I'm just, I'm just learning to be okay with it. No. Don't learn to be okay with sin. That, that's called searing your conscience. That's that hardening of your heart. Don't, don't learn to look the other way or just get over it or, or be okay with it. That, that leads to more trouble. Don't dull the feelings of discomfort because of sin. Don't find ways around it. You've got to deal with it rightly, and we're getting there to what that looks like. But warning number eight, don't sacrifice for your sinful desires. The warning here is sacrificing for your personal sinful desires. It is noble to sacrifice for good, right? You know, to make sacrifices for your children or to sacrifice for what's good. But Judah was willing to pay and even give away his identity to get some of his lust fulfilled. I'm making sacrifices to be able to continue my sin. If you see that in a brother or sister, exhort, come alongside me, come on. We need to get back to the Lord back in Christ instead of in this sin. If you see this in yourself, again, let a brother or sister know. I'm spending all my money. I can't pay my bills because I'm doing what Judah did, or I'm gambling it away, or I'm spending it all on some drugs or some alcohol or whatever it is. That's what we're here for, to exhort one another. Warning number nine, don't fight sin with sin. That's what Tamar did here. It wasn't right what she did. It's going to work out beautifully <laughs> in God's amazing grace and how he, how he works and how He uses us for His glory and how we're willing, sometimes not even knowing. He uses this for His glory and for good, but this is, it's not condoning this. It's not a good idea to fight sin with sin. This is not the right way. It's a warning here. There would be consequences for her and for them. The final part here, verses 20 to 26. We, uh, not the final part, sorry, this is fourth, but we'll move quickly through these last two. The self-justification, we're going to see self-justification and hypocrisy, but then finally confession. 
Judah later sends the payment by his friend Hira. Hira doesn't find Tamar, asking everyone around, where's the lady who was here? There was no cult prostitute here. We find out later on uh, from history and from Hosea that this became common at sheep shearing time. It was an exciting time. Let's engage in sexual cult prostitutions to celebrate and to, and to be excited and, and praise these gods who have given us this, uh, this bounty of, of wool from the sheep. And so that's probably what's happening, on, ha- happening here, what, what they assume was happening, Judah and Hira. But nobody around knows anything about that. So he comes back to tell Judah, and Judah says, well, for, just forget the whole thing. Forget it? She's just, in ancient times, she has just committed identity theft, right? His, all, his whole identity, how could you just forget it? Because look at what his concern is in verse 23. Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. Judah's biggest concern here is his reputation. If you go around asking everybody where this, per, where this lady is, they're going to find out that I was taken for all this stuff, and they're going to, ah, <laughs> you got taken So he protects himself. He protects his own reputation rather than confess his sins. Next, he justifies himself, verse 23. He says, you see, I sent the payment. You went. You were trying to find her. Not my fault. I made an effort, right? Half-hearted effort. He didn't do it himself. He sent his friend to do it. So he justifies himself, and he thinks it's all settled. Day goes into day, week into week, month into month, three months later. He thinks it's all in the past. And he may start to think like you and I might to think, well, I paid a price. You know, I shouldn't have done that. I paid a price, so it's okay now. But the problem with that is that sin deserves, the wages of sin is death, not the loss of some important things or even your identity. We think, well, I've got consequences. Consequences are one thing, brother and sister, but God's displeasure is something completely different. And we said before, we're not going to think that we're approved by God because of blessings, because of good things that He gives us. We're not going to think that we're okay with God because of bad things we, we suffer. Oh, well, he suffered, you know, I, I'm, I'm through with all of that now. Events, brothers and sisters, don't reveal where you stand before God. Circumstances, creation doesn't reveal where we stand before God. That's why we need His Word. That's why we need His Word to tell us where we stand before God. Even if I don't think so or know so or believe so, this is the truth that I stand before God as guilty and condemned. Unless Jesus. His word reveals that to us. That's why we need his word. But then Judah stoops really low here. Someone tells him about Tamar, and, it, and there's gossip here. He finds out through the grapevine that, that she's pregnant. She's not supposed to be. And it's by immorality, or, or the word is prostitution. So Judah gets wrapped up in the web of sin's deception. It's self-righteousness here. Maybe he thinks, I've found my way out of the problem. I can, I can get rid of Tamar. My son doesn't have to die because of her anymore. Just kill her and burn her. Just a public and painful way of, of bringing about what he thinks is justice. The hypocrisy just floods out all over this, doesn't it? She's brought out. She says, look, these three things here prove the per- are, are the person by whom I'm pregnant. Please identify these. And when they're revealed, Judah's sin has been revealed, and so has his hypocrisy. It's just all out in front of everybody. It's all out in the open now. And he could try to, well, she stole it. He he could try to justify, well, this is what happened. But instead, he comes clean. He says, those are mine. He identifies them. And then he says, she is more righteous than I. She who is a woman in this culture, that was less than him, right? She who is a woman. She who is a Canaanite. 
She who has committed adultery and prostitution is more righteous than I am. He confesses. He said, I should have given her to be married to Shelah. I didn't. I've lied. I've deceived. I've been hypocritical. If she deserves the death penalty by burning, what do I deserve? That's what Judah's saying. He's confessing. I deserve the same thing that she was about to get or worse. From this moment on, brothers and sisters, Judah is a completely different person. Judah becomes a different person. From this point on, he never takes advantage of her. Verse 26 says, he did not know her again. Later on, we're going to find out that he's, he moves back home to fellowship with believers, his, his believing family. He moves back home with them to be with the other God-believers and God-worshippers, and then he even sacrifices himself for the sake of his brother. He says, take my life for my brothers. The change that happened in Judah from this to what he becomes was because he acknowledged that sin and he confessed that sin. He turned away from it and began to be a new person. It started with his confession of sin and turning away from it. That's how we deal with it. We don't justify it. We don't hide it. We don't find other ways. Number 10, warning number 10, don't refuse to confess for, your, for the sake of your reputation. That's what Judah here did. But it's not what other people think of me. It's what God thinks of me. And God already knows what I am. He's seen everything I've done. He's seen everything I've even thought he should, he should strike me down and make me pay worse than Ur or Onan ever did. That's what I deserve. He knows that about me, but when I confess and I believe in Jesus Christ, His Son, He makes me different because Jesus earned glory. That's what He gives to us. Instead of damnation, punishment, wrath, we get glory and mercy and grace. Number 11, don't justify yourself in your sin. Don't justify yourself any kind of justification, whether you think you've paid enough. You know, I've had a hard enough life. I can get away with some things here and there. I, I, I've got other consequences. There, there are past things. You know, I've, it's all in the past, and things are going well right now. So I think I'm through all of that. Confession would ruin it all. It's in the past. I can't bring it up now. No, we've got to deal with it. We've got to trust God's Word, not experience, not creation, not events to tell us how we're doing with God. His Word tells us when you confess, God is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Warning number 12, do, finally we get a positive one, right? This has all been don't, 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 don't. Do confess your sins. Say the same thing about them that God says. That's what confess means. God says they're wicked, they're terrible, they're evil, they deserve death. You say, but God, I, you know, I wasn't that bad. No, say the same thing he says. Acknowledge, confess, and then he gives grace. Final part, verses 27 to 30, twin sons come. Twin sons, despite all the sin and the scheming, God's plan continues. Tamar has twin sons, and these two sons replace the two who were killed. Ur and Onan are gone, now you get these two sons, Perez and Zerah. The midwife doesn't know if they're identical twins, if they're going to be able to tell them apart later, so she ties a scarlet thread around the, the hand of one of them. And you know this isn't going to be a normal pregnancy. When a hand comes out, <laughs> it's not going to be a normal one, but she tries to do that. It looks like scarlet thread will be born first. That's what Zerah, scarlet's going to be born, but the twin who made a breach, who broke through, that's what Perez means, comes out first. Perez, one of the set of twins born of Tamar's deceit, 
Judah's hypocrisy, all of this sin, Perez breaks out in front of his brother. Perez is the one to continue the line directly to Jesus. Perez. Here's the encouragement, brother and sister. We've finally gotten here. It's past the time to end, but we're here at the encouragement, so don't check out yet. We see again and again and again, again here that God's plan is not dependent on us. If God's plan was dependent on me, brother and sister, we'd all be in a lot of trouble. I fail all the time, but by God's grace and His mercy, His plan continues. Even as we begin to see the righteousness of Joseph against this backdrop of just wicked sin from Judah, God's plan doesn't change. Judah is still the one through whom the Messiah will come. Judah doesn't sin and mess up so much that God says, you know what, forget you. (laughs) I'm out of here. I'm going with Joseph. Look how good he is. Joseph's righteousness doesn't earn something before God, so God says, you know what, Joseph, I like how you're living. I'm going to go with you instead of Judah. Brothers and sisters, there's encouragement in this that God's not waiting on us to make ourselves righteous that we can't do on our own. He's not waiting on us to make ourselves what we could never be on our own. This is encouraging because you're going to sin again. I'm going to mess up today. (laughs) But if you're in Jesus, brothers and sisters, if you are in Jesus, God's plan for your salvation, you will never be forsaken. You will never be rejected or replaced by someone better than you or worse than you. Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's plan is the plan of God. He is the mighty able one, not the mighty hopeful one. Now, he's the God of hope because we need hope, but he never hopes. He knows. He's already done it. He's already declared it. He's already got you in his hand if you are in Jesus Christ. If you're not, you need to acknowledge him, his goodness, his holiness, his justice, his wrath, his mercy and grace. He gives us hope, but he never needs hope himself. To begin this relationship with God, we've got to confess our sins and to continue to be in fellowship with God. He says we need to confess our sins. And this is God's grace to forgive us of those sins. Confessing sins does not remove God's grace. It magnifies his grace. It magnifies his grace. Father God, What a joy and a privilege, God, to read through so many accounts of so many people messing up. God, they've sinned. They've turned away from you, Father. They have have rejected you, and yet, Lord, when you let them see the sinfulness of their sin, when they're no longer deceived by it, God, and held by it, they, they throw it all before you and confess it, God. They throw themselves before you at your mercy, God. You say you will have mercy, that you will forgive. God, we see it here again, and Lord, even though it's, it's ugly sin, it's ugly what's in our past, what we've done, what we've thought, what we've said, God, it's beautiful that you forgive in your grace and your mercy. Father, we praise you, we glorify you, we exalt the name of our Savior, Jesus, because of who he is, because of what he's done for us. God, I pray that it would be so real to us, that it would be so important and so alive in us that we would, we, we would not be able not to tell people about this Jesus, about his gospel, that that's what we would talk about, that that's what we would live, Lord, and that that's how we would exhort, encourage, and advise one another, Father. Thank you for these brothers and sisters of mine. 
Thank you for their love for you. God, thank you for your love for us. Lord, we know that we have the same sinful heart that these people had. Lord, we, if not for your grace, we would be doing the same things or worse. But God, because of Jesus, but because of Jesus, Lord, we are alive to you. And we can live a life that's glorifying to you in righteousness and holiness because of your work in us. God, thank you. We sing to you. We speak of you. We live for you because of Jesus. In his name, amen.